0: Alright, welcome to episode 49 of Seize the Moment Podcast, and today we have a very special guest, Massimo Pediucci. He is the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. He's author of How to Be a Stoic, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Living, a Handbook for New Stoics, How to Thrive in a World Out of Your Control, co-authored with Gregory Lopez, and How to Live a Good Life, a guide to choosing your personal philosophy, co-edited with Sky Cleary and Dan Kaufman. Welcome Massimo. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you so Thank you much for coming. for coming on Massimo and so of course today we're going to talk about how to live a good life and in particular your chapter on Stoicism and how to live a good life. Right. And so my first question is going to be so who were the ancient Stoics or what sort of wisdom did they have to provide us with?
2: Well the ancient Stoics were uh, a group of Hellenistic philosophers. The, the Hellenistic period goes from roughly from the Death of Alexander the Great and the collapse of the Macedonian Empire to the beginning of the Roman Empire, and it was a period of turmoil uh, in the Mediterranean world. I mean, pe- you know, things were happening very fast, and and, and uh, people felt like they had no control over uh, sort of the big events in life. And so that period brought um, about a flourishing of a number of philosophies, not just Stoicism, but also Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, uh, uh skepticism. There's a bunch of of them, and it's probably not by chance because that kind of turmoil and feeling like things are not only changing rapidly but that the the changes are outside your control uh, typically sort of uh, helps uh, or or fostering the development of philosophies. This has happened in other times and periods and and places in the history of humanity. In fact, 200 years earlier uh, it had happened in India uh, for Buddhism Mm -hmm. and about at the same time uh, in China in the case of Confucianism, so also those also were periods of m- major turmoil locally and as a result you get, you know, the origin of these, these philosophies. Now Stoicism in particular was studied by a merchant, a Phoenician merchant, a guy named uh, Zeno of Cytum, mm-hmm. around 300 BCE. And uh, Zeno had uh, lost everything he had in a, in a shipwreck and uh, he made it alive to Athens. And, of course, when you're shipwrecked and you lost everything, the first thing you do is what? You go to a bookstore, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is what Zeno did. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and naturally, he started reading uh, Xenophon's Memorabilia, which is a book about uh, the life uh, of, uh, of Socrates, which we still have. It's, it's, uh, it survived to modern times. Mm-hmm. And uh, while he was reading that book, he, he turned to the, to the bookseller and he said, you know, where, where can I find me a guy like this, meaning a philosopher? And the bookseller uh, turned around and said, well, there's one walking right here outside the door right now and uh, follow that guy. And, you know, I'm sure he's, he's, a, he's a philosopher. And that guy turned out to be Crates of Tibes, who was a cynic philosopher. Mm-hmm. That's how uh, Zeno got started. He actually studied philosophy with a number of teachers. And then at some point he felt confident enough to start teaching on his own. And he started teaching in uh, the middle of the market, basically right au- right outside of the agora, which is the main market in, in was the ma- main market in Athens, uh, in a place called the poikile which uh, means uh, painted porch, mm-hmm. and that's why the name Stoics. Huh, interesting, uh, so because it comes from the from the store. And the basic teaching is that uh, of Stoicism is that we should live according to nature, mm-hmm. by which. Uh, The Stoics mean that we should take seriously the most important, most distinctive parts of of aspects of human nature. And for them, there are two of of these most distinctive aspects. One, that we are capable of reason. And two, that we are highly social animals. We we thrive only in a social group. So it followed for the Stoics that a good human life is a life where you apply your mind to improve social living. So that's the fundamental, the fundamental notion of Stoicism. Then I'm sure we're going to talk about how they actually uh, catch that in, in, in practice and, you know, and, and how do you actually do that. But that's the basic idea.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what were the four cardinal virtues of Stoicism then be?
2: So that's one way to uh, actually implement this notion of living according to nature. Uh, uh, in practice, one way to, to practice Stoicism, to, to actually implement Stoicism in your life, is to uh, keep in mind these four fundamental or cardinal virtues and use them essentially as a moral compass, hmm. as a way to navigate your, your life. Um, so if you should never do anything, according to the Stoics, that um, the four virtues wouldn't agree hmm. uh, on on have you do it. So the four virtues are... Practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. The one that often creates problems for people is practical wisdom. So let let me start with that. uh, First of all, it's an unwieldy translation in English. The uh, original Greek term is phronesis. Hmm. And uh, it just means the knowledge of what is good and bad for you. What is truly good and bad for you. Now, uh, we all grow up with our parents, our peers, television, and so on and so forth, telling us that things that are good for us include you know money women or men depending on your preferences mm-hmm. um fame uh you know that sort of stuff okay. career and so on and so forth. for the stoics uh on the other hand all of those things may be preferred or 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 dispreferred but they're not the main thing that you should focus on the the, the only thing that is truly good for you is your own moral character hmm. right? so your own good judgments and so basically the practice of um, you know, the implementation of practical wisdom in your life just means that any time you, you're about to do something, you should ask yourself, is this good for my character or not? Is it going to improve my character or is it going to undermine my character? I'll give you an example in a minute. Um, the second virtue, cardinal virtue, is courage, by which they didn't mean just courage to go into battle or you know or, or, or um, to face uh, physical danger, although it could be that. Uh, but it's mostly it's it's moral courage. It's the courage to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then the, the third virtue, which is closely related to courage, is justice. Meaning that you really need to do the right thing. You need to know what the right thing to do. As the right thing uh, when it comes to uh, interacting with others. right? So practical wisdom is the right thing for you. Mm-hmm. And justice is the right thing when it comes to others. Oh, because okay. after all, we mm-hmm. do live in a society. So, so there's a distinction there. right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and uh, the distinction is that, of course, as I just said, What's good for you is re- is really the improvement of your own moral character, but well, that's not the same thing that is good for others. Meaning that you cannot improve other people's character; that's up to them, mm-hmm. right? But what you can do is to treat them fairly, to treat them as you know, with integrity, as as and and uh, and generosity, all sorts of stuff. And then the fourth virtue is uh, temperance. Mm-hmm. Temperance is often understood as doing things in small doses but in fact in fact it means doing things in right doses in the right amount neither, neither too much nor too little. Mm-hmm. So let me give you a, a standard example. Let's say that I'm at work and, and I see my boss that is going is harassing one of my co-workers right? Well should I intervene? Now let's see how the four virtues will answer. first in terms of practical wisdom, yes it's good for my character to intervene. And no, it's not good for my character not to intervene. Right? Because it, not doing the right thing undermines my own character. Mm-hmm. So in my own terms, in terms of what is good for me, it's actually a good thing to intervene. Second, does it, does it require courage? Yes, it requires courage because after all, it's my boss. So I could face retaliation, I could be fired, or I could be getting on his, you know, the wrong side of things and so on and so forth. So it requires courage. Is it just? Well, hell yes, because if I were the one being... Uh, arrest, I would want somebody to step in and help me out, right? Absolutely. And so, I'm, I just, by stepping in, I'm just treating other people the way in which I would like them to treat me. And what about temperance? Well, temperance tells me that I should do it in the right measure. So, I shouldn't go either too little, that would be like, you know, mothering under my breath that there's something wrong, but without my boss actually listening to me, you know, hearing me. Well, that's not enough. because right. that doesn't do anything. <laughs> but at the same time, you also don't want to jump on your boss and punch him on the nose because that seems like a little too much of a, of a reaction considering what the situation is. Right. And so temperance tells you that you should probably say calmly and politely to your boss something on the lines of, hey, you know, this is not acceptable. Maybe we can come up with some kind of understanding. So that's, that's, that's a classic example of how you actually practice the, the Stoicism, everything that you do, you should ask yourself, well, is this practically wise or frenetic, if you want to use the Greek word, Mm -hmm. is it courageous, is it just, and is it temperate? And if the answer is no to any of those questions, don't do it.
1: Yeah. I love that so much. And so I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, and so I try my best to implement stoic practices and sort of stoic teachings. And so outside of existential philosophy, and shout out to Sky, (laughs) so stoicism has definitely been one of the most empowering philosophies I've ever encountered. And what I love about it is that, I mean, a lot of what we go through is that, you know, the sort of, um, as they say, we kind of encounter the vicissitudes of life in the world, and a lot of it we can't control. And what's so beautiful about stoicism and focusing on character and the person you actually are is that. that's always going to be, or for the most part, depending on obviously mental illness and obviously things outside of your control. Right, Right. Um, Right. So it's always going to be a part of your life and it's always going to be a part of something that you can actually sort of mold on your own. with obviously help but it's for the most part virtually within your control. And so what I found to be in my own practice is that Stoicism and Stoic principles have given people the ability to look at themselves and look at their lives in a much more hopeful and like uh, let's say much more empowering way. And is that kind of what brought you to the Stoicism? Sort of feeling that like this was a philosophy that made you feel like you were more in control than you were before
2: Uh, yes I got to stoicism after a uh, search of several for several years that started out with a midlife crisis uh, not surprisingly (laughs) Uh, you know nothing particularly terrible happened um, but the the kind of things that make you question your thing you know your situation so on the one hand um, I have went through a divorce and my father died and i changed jobs and i moved to another place all of those things happen within a span of a few months and now one of those things is normally problematic enough that you need to sort of slow down and figure out what you want to do having all four of them happen basically simultaneously kind of you know it's like wow okay mm-hmm. now now what kind of thing right now that was also the time that i was actually um beginning to study seriously at a graduate level philosophy because my first career was as a scientist. I was an evolutionary biologist for a long time and I had just gone you know through graduate school in philosophy and even though uh, in graduate school you study you know technical philosophy obviously but you also have to take you know some of the basics. So I took a course on Plato, I took a course on ethics and so at some point it, started, you know, it struck me it's like well maybe philosophy is going to be the, the, the where you want to go in terms of, of sort of reorienting yourself and, and your life. And, um, and it struck me immediately that the answer uh, or, or a good framework was going to come from virtual ethics.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Right? So virtual ethics is this broad approach that was developed by the ancient Greeks and Romans. Um, and uh, that, that that focuses not on what is right or wrong in general, but how to improve your character, how to live your life, really. And so I studied. I, I started approaching virtual ethics, and and uh, the first stop was, of course, Aristotle. And the problem with Aristotle, as far as I was concerned, is that the guy was a little bit on the elitist um,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: side of, of things. Not surprisingly, since you know he, he, his father was a doctor at the at the king of uh, at the court of the king of Macedon, so you know and he was a tutor of Alexander the Great. Right. So. Yeah. You know, he was an aristocrat, mm-hmm. but basically, what he said was, yeah, virtue is absolutely important. You know, your character is important, but you know, in order to have a eudaimonic life, a life worth living, uh, you also have to have a number of other things. You have to have a little bit of education. A little bit, you know, you have to be healthy. Uh, you have to be have a little bit of wealth. You have to be good looking. And I said, oh, come on. Mm-hmm. That's it. Done. Um, that, that's not gonna. That's not gonna work. <laughs> uh, no. So the second step, the, the, the second stop was uh, was Epicureanism, and and there was a reason for that. Um, for a long time, you know, when I was a when I was a kid, I grew up in the Catholic in Rome, and I grew up in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and then I left the church around age fifteen ish or so, um, and ever since I considered myself a secular humanist. A lot of psycho-humanists are inclined toward the philosophy of Epicurus for a number of reasons. First of all, because Epicurus was uh, obviously an atomic, atomist in terms of physics, so you know his, his metaphysics was actually very compatible with modern science, mm-hmm. um, or at least a antecedent to modern science. Um, he also it was not an atheist, but it, it thought that the God the God doesn't really give a damn about human beings, and more importantly, that you shouldn't be afraid of dying because there is no afterlife, there is no eternal punishment, nothing like that. So you could see why that sort of attitude would, um, and he was also big on friendship. So you, so you would see why that kind of attitude actually fits with sort of a secular humanist uh, perspective. The problem with Epicureans, so that's why I approached it. The problem with Epicureans is that uh, Epicureanism is that the fundamental thing in Epicurean, the goal of an Epicurean life is to minimize pain. Uh, In fact, Epicurus uh, actually defined the highest pleasure as lack of pain, Mm -hmm. particularly emotional pain. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with that is that he also immediately said, therefore, you don't want to get involved in society, and especially in politics. (laughs) <laughs> because, as we all know, that's meaningful, yeah. um, right? And I cannot imagine a meaningful life for me without a social and political involvement of some sort. So I said, well, you know, thanks for participating, but that's not going to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's where I was at the time. And I, you know, I was still thinking that in somewhere in that area, it had to be, that there had to be an answer. And then I got this um, tweet that said, um, you know, help us celebrate Stoic Week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the hell is that mm-hmm. uh, who wants to celebrate the stoics and <laughs> you know, why mm-hmm. but I was curious and of course I remember the stoics were also a, a uh, type of ethics. and so I signed up I, and the rest is history because the first um, the first stoic that I read about you know I, I, had, I had read um, Marcus Aurelius meditations while I was in college
3: mm-hmm.
2: I had actually translated Seneca uh, when I was in high school because I studied Latin um, but I never actually connected the two. I didn't even think that the two were actually sort of somehow connected, and I, didn't. I had no idea who the hell Epictetus was. Mm-hmm. Because even though he was a major philosopher for most of the last two millennium, yeah, up until the 19th century included, um, in the 20th century he kind of went into an eclipse, uh, and lots of people sort of forgot about Epictetus. Mm-hmm. And so even in graduate school, I never heard of Epictetus. Graduate school in philosophy, I never heard of Epictetus. Right? Mm-hmm. even though I took a course in ancient Greek uh, philosophy. So it's like,
3: what? Mm-hmm.
2: Who is this guy? Yeah, and he's so often
1: then, con- confused with Epicurus. Say, sorry, say that again. Yeah, he's, he's, it he's often confused with Epicurus. Yes, yeah. that's right.
2: First mm-hmm. of all, you know they all start with E P whatever. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. in fact, if you do a, uh, a search online uh, for images mm-hmm. um, under for Epictetus, actually Epicurus starts, <laughs> you know, comes up a lot, which is why you read a lot of articles. Uh, that are about Epictetus, but actually accompanied by a picture of Epi- Epicurus, which mm-hmm. is like, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's particularly ironic because um, in uh, in one chapter of the discourses, Epictetus actually has a big diatribe against Epicurus. He <laughs> it, really goes into a rampage about about Epicurus and why it's a bad idea to be an Epicurean so on. So it's kind of ironic that he's often confused with Epicurus today.
1: Yeah. And so, what drew you to the philosophy, to Epictetus? Well Epictetus uh,
2: spoke to me for a number of reasons. First of all, because he's no nonsense. Uh, like one of the very first things that I read in the beginning of the Discourses of Epictetus, he says, um, um, so fine, we'll have to die you know, someday, but it appears that this is not the day. Um, on the other hand, I am hungry and so let's go for lunch. It's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> I, can, I, can, yeah, I, can, I can see that. Um, I also kind of, uh, it resonates his bluntness to his students, is, uh, he, to some extent, his sense of humor and even sarcasm, you know, he, he actually makes fun of his students. He, he says at one point um, in the discourses also, he says, uh, so I see a bunch of you here who are interested in, you know, stoicism, and you, you, you understand the theory, you, you, you know, everything about the virtues and the dichotomy of control, and, and then you go out and you, be, and you behave like Aristotelians. It's like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> and what did he mean by that? Yeah, so it's like, you know, why are you wasting my time um, with this stuff and your time as well? It's like, obviously, you don't believe it. You understand it, but you don't believe it because you're not practicing it. So, mm-hmm. so those are reasons uh, why Epictetus immediately sort of spoke to me. But then you get you, in, in depth into his philosophy and, of course, into other Stoics' philosophy, particularly uh, Seneca. Mm-hmm. Seneca is the one that we have most by, lo- by far the most material. That survived. So we have 124 letters that he wrote to Lucilius, to his friend Lucilius. We have uh, on anger, we have uh, on the happy life, we have a bunch of things from from Seneca. So he's by far the most, um, uh, the, the ancient author of Stoicism from which we have the most documentation. And once you start delving into the philosophy in, in depth, it's like, well, yeah, the more, the more I went, I got into it, the more it made sense. So he had sort of the opposite, it was the opposite experience from that solid and epicurus that, that superficially looked good and then when I started looking into the details and eh, now that's this is not for me
0: yeah and there are ways to practice stoicism right like uh, for example restriction right like maybe fasting or uh, yeah cold exposure mm-hmm. yeah
2: there are there are several practices in stoicism again with Greg Lopez you mentioned uh, we wrote uh, with my friend Greg we wrote a, a book called the handbook um, uh, for new Stoics, and it has 52 exercises. Now, we came up with those exercises. Not, they don't find them directly into the ancient sources, but each exercise is directly inspired by uh, a quote from Epictetus or Marcus or, or Seneca, mm-hmm. or even some of the, the rather lesser-known Stoics, like Musonius Rufus, for instance, who was Epictetus' uh, teacher. Uh, but the Stoics clearly practiced. I mean, they did have an emphasis on practice, and even though they might not, not have practiced in the way we practice 2,000 years later, or they, certainly they didn't use the same terminology. Uh, the, the, the notion that uh, you know Stoicism is a small part of theory and a great part of practice was there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now you just mentioned one of the standard exercises, with these are self-deprivation exercises, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like fasting, for instance,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, or taking a cold shower or something like that. Now, uh, the, the point of those exercises is twofold. On the one hand, to remind yourself that you can actually deal with uh, deprivation being deprived of certain things for a period. Right. So you can you can skip a meal or two. Uh, or you know, you don't have to have a hot shower uh, you know available, hot water available. You can do you can deal with it. In other words, it's it's reminding it's about reminding yourself that you're more resilient than you might think. Right. But it's also a exercise in appreciation of what you normally have and you might not appreciate. Uh, there's this wonderful passage in uh, uh, Seneca's letters to Lucilius where he says that he went fasting for a couple of days. And then he says, you wouldn't believe how good that soup and stale bread tasted I back. <laughs> Like you know, um,
0: So he, he,
2: he was used to pretty fancy meals because he was a senator. You know, he was pretty, pretty uh, wealthy man. Mm-hmm. But he says stale bread and soup just was wonderful after you, 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 you fasted for two days. So that, that's the... The two, those are the two reasons why you do these exercises. One reason not to do these exercises is to show off to other people. I mean, I've actually seen uh, people uh, that that take a cold shower and then they take um, selfies of themselves and oh, post them. Oh God! It on, yeah. On social media is like no, that's not the reason to do it. Yeah. You're just trying to show off, which is definitely not good for your character. Showing off is not a good thing for your character. You're simply <laughs> undermining, and you're not. You're not um, engaging in, in practical wisdom in the way you should. So mm-hmm. just like in a, anything, it's uh, especially particularly about in philosophy and specifically in socialism, it's all about why you do certain things, not just the things that you do. Um, one of the differences between ancient philosophy and modern philosophy, and one of the reasons I prefer the ancient variety, is that modern philosophies like utilitarianism uh, or, or Kantian-style deontology and things like that, they tend to be focused on whether an action is right or wrong.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Uh, the Stoics would never ask that question okay? because because actions are not right or wrong in a vacuum. It's always about your intentions. Why are you doing that sort of thing? Right. Is, you know, virtue is not in, in the action. Virtue is in the intentions of the, of the agent.
3: Right? Mm-hmm.
2: And so let me give you an example. Let's say, for instance, that um, uh, you volunteer for the local soup kitchen. Right? And, and if you ask a Kantian, they will probably say, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing to do because you're being helpful to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you ask a utilitarian, they will probably say, yeah, that's a good thing to do because you're increasing total happiness, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And a Stoic would say, so, well, tell me more. Why are you doing this thing? Because if you're doing it in order to actually help other people, because you're actually concerned about other people, then yes, that's a virtuous action and you should definitely do it. But if, the, if it turns out that the reason you're doing it is because you need a line on your resume, uh, to show that you volunteer so that you get your next job, then that's not a virtuous action. You mm-hmm. may still have good consequences, right? But, um, but it's not virtuous because you're not doing it for the right reason. It's, in fact, it's, it's vicious because you're undermining your own character. Yeah. Hmm. By pretending to care for other people, while in fact you're actually doing it for your own selfish reasons, you're actually undermining your character. So it's, it's actually not only not virtuous, it's actually a vicious action.
3: Yeah. So and that
2: that I think makes a, it's a very important point that it's that really gets lost in a lot of uh, uh, discussions about ethics uh, in, in these days.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and in terms of their character or in terms of our character as a whole, what according to the Stoics or according to their ancient writings, what does it tell us about why moral character was sort of exalted above all else?
2: Well, so we tend to talk about virtue, right, and moral character and all that sort of stuff. But but the word virtue in Greek is arete. And arete just means excellence, mm-hmm. the best you can be.
3: Yep.
2: Right. And so, by definition, why wouldn't what you want to be the best you can be?
3: Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> why would you want to
2: settle for something less than that, right? Yeah. So, this is an argument, actually, that you find in Socrates, uh, particularly in the *Eutydemus*, which is a, a platonic dialogue where Socrates has to, uh, so interacts with, with two sophists. And at some point, one of the sophists actually uh, asked uh, Socrates, you know, why should I care about you know, virtue, wisdom, and all that sort of stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. And Socrates'
2: answer, basically, is the same one that a Stoic would give you, which is, which is, well, because virtue is what actually makes everything else meaningful and good. Mm-hmm. As I just gave you the example of the person that volunteers for, uh, for the soup kitchen is like, well. It's how you do things, is why you do things that makes it that makes it valuable or not valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, Epictetus begins uh, right at the beginning of the discourses. There is a there is a quote that where, where somebody, one of his students must have asked him about money,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the, the you know the value of money.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And Epictetus' the answer is, well, uh, sure, it's it's preferred, but the question is, once you have the money, what are you going to do with it? Your yep. money is not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Now, you the, your faculty of reason is going to tell you. Your, your, ability to uh, act virtuously. And so money is a typical example. There's nothing wrong inherent, per se, about money, but there is also nothing good about money, per se. We yeah. tend to think in modern society that money is obviously a, a positive,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but not necessarily. If, if money is in the hands of somebody who uses it in order to corrupt the political system, for instance, mm-hmm. then that's not good. That's actually a dispreferred preferred uh, thing for the Stoics. It's, it's, a, it's of a negative value. Yeah. Right? So, so that was the argument, that, uh, the, that virtue or wisdom in general, uh, Socrates used those two, word, those two words independent, uh, uh, sorry, interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even the Stoics, to some extent, because even though I just mentioned four virtues and we went through the differences between them, the Stoics actually subscribed to a notion called the unity of virtue. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to which the four virtues are really four aspects of the same underlying thing. And that underlying thing is wisdom. Mm -hmm. Which is why the Socratic argument is essentially the same that the Stoics would put forth. So the notion, therefore, is that all the other goods, external goods, may turn out to be positive or negative, depending on how you use them. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that allows you to use them correctly is, in fact, wisdom. That's why wisdom is the chief good or the only true good, uh, according to the Stoics
1: right and it could even I think be argued because I remember like when I was a kid and like let's say you know obviously kids kind of sometimes do stupid stuff and when I would steal something let's say um so I would actually enjoy it for maybe about a second and then I would be clearly reminded of the fact that this thing was stolen and that I didn't earn it so it's right. like in the short term right I might have had the pleasure of enjoying the object whatever it was but in the long term because in some way I sullied my calorie my character to get it it was something that I actually kind of hated myself for doing mm-hmm. so yeah. if we think about character I even think that it's possible that kind of we have this natural tendency to just evolve toward the good or evolve toward becoming better human beings. And even if we attain those preferred indifference, I think just naturally we have a tendency to either like them or dislike them based on the motivations and how we attain them.
2: Oh, I agree. Uh, in fact,
1: that sounds a little Pollyannish if you say it like that. But uh, in fact,
2: that was one of the main stoic arguments. This, this was, uh, it was referred to as the cradle argument. And the cradle argument uh, essentially said that, look, if you actually observe human infants, Human beings, when they're very, very young, you will see that they're naturally pro-social. Right? They, they do. They try to do. They tend to do whatever is good for them. Of course, uh, you know, for their own survival and physical integrity, etc. But they immediately realize that that is interconnected with um, caring and, and paying attention to their caretakers, to the people that surround them. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, in uh, from for the Stoics already, that was in fact an indication that we are naturally pro-social. And pro-social is another word for virtues, essentially, because the virtue is about being pro-social. Now, in modern, uh, in modern terms, uh, we, would, we definitely have a lot of um, evidence from comparative primatology that uh, human beings are one of the social uh, uh, primates, species of primates. And other species of primates, for instance, the bonobos, the, the pygmy chimpanzees, are also naturally prosocial that they are instinctually prosocial mm-hmm. now what the stoics then also said is that this instinct they didn't call it an instinct, but this was a natural uh you know tendency uh is what gets us started
3: mm-hmm.
2: but it's not enough right because then at some point you hit the the age of reason mm-hmm. uh which is about between seven and eight or nine years old depending you know development in terms of developmental psychology yeah. and that's where you start entertaining, uh, you know, being able to entertain abstract uh, concepts, you know, generalizations and things like that. And that is reason that helps you to expand your natural pro-sociality. You know, so, so you're naturally virtuous, but nature is not enough. Seneca actually says it very clearly that you start there and then n- that pro-sociality has to be nurtured. First, it's nurtured inside your, your family
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then inside society at, at, at large um, and then eventually, in fact, he actually says um, that at some point you might need to, in fact, reject the teachings of your family because your parents might actually be under misguided impressions about what's really good for you. Yeah. Right? True. Most of your parents will tell you, hey, what's good for you is money, career, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know, material things. And at that point, Seneca says, you know, you're, you're now you know, intelligent enough, you're know, developed enough that you know better and so you need to associate yourself with a, a, what he calls a brother family and the brother family is the family of philosophers right so so you start reading uh philosophy and, and thinking um more broadly about um about that problem, that that situation yeah
1: and so a psychologist who really greatly influenced my thinking was a stoic himself, Albert Ellis, the founder of REBT yes, therapy. Yeah. And so the way that Albert Ellis would conceptualize the difference between, let's say, the person's character and the sort of these preferred indifferences, he would say, look, if you're focusing on the external, right, going back to parents and going back to success and money and fame and mm-hmm. all of these things that we can have in the world, what he says is essentially you're going to kind of seesaw in your self-esteem. Once in a while, you'll get those things. Most of the time, because of the way life works, most of us will never attain those levels of success. That's just how it is so for us when we kind of look at value or the way we kind of value human nature right is more internal more about us and our own kind of decision-making ability or our own sort of volition he says we have the kind of ability to recreate our self-conceptions and base our self-esteem on something that's more internal rather than something that's literally capricious most of the time and so why i love and why i love that is when we talk about the stoics there's this difference right between and this is something we hope to definitely go into this difference between in terms of what the what it means um the concept of dichotomy of control right so there are these things that we know that we can control and if we so choose we can base our self-esteem on them right and here are all these other things which we can definitely enjoy if we want to but we don't necessarily need them to feel good about ourselves and so what i love about this philosophy is there's such a thing as good enough it's like if we were to view ourselves or our lives as good enough right then we we could look at these other things which are basically outside of our controls as just being additions or bonuses as things that are just they're lovely right and they're things that we can enjoy and they're nice to have but if we kind of go back to the core of who we are, they don't really indicate that. They don't tell us who we are about ourselves, because we're the ones who get to choose that. And so, Massimo, yeah. I would then ask you, in terms of the dichotomy of the, control, or the dichotomy of control, what are the aspects of control that we can control, and what are the aspects of it that would be the preferred indifferences?
2: So, uh, this is very clearly laid out right at the beginning of the Enchiridion, which is uh, Epictetus' manual for a good life. And um, I have to say, wait, wait, I don't particularly like the phrase, the economy of control, I think we're stuck with it at this point. I think this was introduced by uh, Bill Irvine, actually, in one of his early books on stoicism, mm-hmm. and we're kind of stuck with it. So, uh, you know, I'm not even gonna try to, to change it. But I want—I do wanna point out that the word control here is a little bit misleading, because people immediately start thinking, in my experience at least, people immediately start thinking that there are some things under their control, other things are not under their control, and then there's a bunch of stuff in between because they can influence it, right? And that's, of course, true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't undermine the dichotomy control at all, because the things you can influence themselves are made of two components. One that you control, and the other one you don't control. Mm-hmm. So you're still, ba- you're still down to, the, to, a, to a dichotomy. But interestingly, in fact, Epictetus doesn't use the word control. Uh, depending on the translation you look at in English, he um, uses the words up to you, mm-hmm. or in your power. Mm-hmm. And up to you is actually the one that I prefer, because it, it gives you this image of, for certain things the buck stops with you, mm-hmm. you're responsible for it, and for other things, the buck doesn't stop with you. Right? So he basically makes this, this distinction. He says right at the, right at the beginning of the Incaridion, said, okay, you only control the following, your judgments, mm-hmm. your decisions to act or not to act, and your endorsed values. He doesn't use those words, but that's a pretty, pretty, pretty good translation of what, of what he's saying there. Uh, in fact, the words that he does use often are misunderstood in English, and that's why I, re- I rephrased it. If you, you have to go back to the Greek um, to understand that he has actually being very specific there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, those, post, those things that I just mentioned actually uh, are going parallel, go hand-to-hand uh, in hand with the uh, three disciplines of Epictetus. The way Epictetus teaches uh, his stoicism, his brand of stoicism, uh, hinges on three disciplines the discipline of desire and aversion, the discipline of action, and the discipline of assent. Mm -hmm. The discipline of desire and aversion teaches you to reorient your desires and your aversions. In other words, it's about your values, your endorsed values, Mm -hmm. right? Desire here doesn't mean, oh, I desire a beer, let me get up and and go get it. Mm -hmm. It means what is it that I want in life, right? So as we were just saying earlier, most of us want Success in terms of externals, and Epictetus says, "No, you should reorient yourself in terms of success toward internals.
3: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: So, your your character. So, what you should desire properly is a good character.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's why he's saying your endorsed values are up are up to you. Nobody else can force you. They can suggest, make suggestions, or oh, you should really value this or that or the other. But nobody can force you. What you value is up to you, not to not to anybody else. Right. The second discipline is the discipline of action." And that's why Epictetus said, which is concerned with what you do with respect with other people, right? we live in a society, so we have to, to figure out how to behave with, toward, toward other people. That's why Epictetus says the second thing that is in, uh, up to you is, in fact, your reasons to act or not to act.
3: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: Um, so in, in any particular situation, if you act in a certain way, that you're responsible for your actions. You're the one that decided to act or not to act.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, you
2: know, in my early example in the beginning... Uh, you're the one that decides to talk to your boss or not talk to your boss on behalf of your coworker. right? Nobody else can force you to do that. Right. They can, again, they can suggest it or maybe you should do that or don't do, don't do that or something like that. But ultimately, it is your decision. And then the third thing that it says is up to us uh, is concerned with the discipline of assent. Assent means means agreeing to something, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so it's your, your judgments. So what is up to you is essentially your ability to say, yeah, this is a good thing or this is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right? That's and, and he says that's pretty much it. Nothing else is up to you. Mm-hmm. Everything else is not up to you. Meaning not that you cannot do anything about it, but meaning that ultimately the buck doesn't stop with you. Mm-hmm. And he makes a list and a, a partial. He gives you a partial list, and that partial list includes your body, your reputation, uh, and your position in life, your stature in life. Right. Mm-hmm. And and your wealth—it's like, oh, okay, that's pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> so, what does he mean by that? Well, he says, for instance, you know, since we're we're having this conversation in the middle of a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the first one, health. Right. Um, now, uh, in terms of health, of course, you can do certain things to to improve or maintain your health. Right. So, I, I for instance, decided a long time ago that I needed to eat you know, more healthy fashion, you know, mostly vegetables, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Great. I can do that. That's up to me. That, that's a decision. It's an endorsed judgment, right? Health is important to me and it is a decision. I'm, I decide what I'm going to eat or not going to eat. When I go to the grocery store, I decide what to buy what not to buy, right? Right. Um, I also decided a long time ago that I had to that, that I go to the gym to maintain a minimum amount of physical fitness you know, in terms of you know, muscle tone and, and aerobic capacity. Again... That decision is up to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The endorsed, the implied endorsed value there is my physical body requires certain kinds of uh, sort of maintenance basically.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And finally, I decided some time ago that preventive medicine is better than uh you know than than do things after the fact. So on a regular basis, I go to the doctor, I have my analysis done, etc. etc. Great. All of this has served me fairly well. But that doesn't mean I didn't get sick over the last you know 10 or 15 or 20 years since I decided to do this kind of stuff. Occasionally a virus as in the case of the ones that we're experiencing now, just can hit you, it can strike you. There's no fault of your own, it just it just happens. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how much you were prepared, how healthy you eat, uh, how often you go to the doctor, and how often you go to the gym, you're still going to get sick. Mm-hmm. Hopefully hopefully you're not going to die, but you're still, definitely still going to get sick. In other words, your health ultimately is not up to you. Mm-hmm. The buck doesn't stop with you. You can, you can and should do a certain number of things, to uh, Minimize the chances of getting sick, but ultimately that's not up to right. you. Um, the same goes for all the other things that all the other externals that Epictetus mentions. Right? So your reputation. Reputation. Well, obviously the best way to preserve your reputation is to actually behave, you know, like a decent human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's no guarantee. I mean, we especially these days we live in a uh, environment which is fraught with social media and fake news and alternative facts and all that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, somebody can start a campaign, a smearing campaign against you, and it can actually work. This, regardless of how good a person you are, how well you acted, and all that, sort of stuff, that just, that's, that's just going to
0: happen. It's true. They could take a soundbite of something that you said out yeah. of context and misinterpret right. it and build a whole story around it. Mm-hmm. And right. what you would have to do to even unwire that, it, it, the amount of work that takes is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So you right yeah,
2: and it might still not work. Yeah. you may still do all that work, and people are not going to believe you necessarily. Um, so reputation is also ultimately not up to you. Um, your wealth, same thing. I mean, you know, I have my retirement account uh, as most teachers do uh, with a company called TIAA which manages my account. Well, I haven't even looked hmm. at what has happened over the last few weeks to that account because I know it's, it went down significantly hmm. and it's no fault of my own. There's, there's no decision there that I could have possibly made uh, to to avoid that. It's just a result of external circumstances that are obviously well beyond, well beyond my control. Right. And then um, Finally, your 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 as uh, what Epictetus calls your office, in other words, your work, your career, there too, you can do your best, of course. And the best way to assure a good career is, is in fact, to work hard and you know do the right things and all that sort of stuff. But still, I've seen, you know, I am an academic, and I consider myself lucky uh, for because of the position. You know, I'm a full uh, full uh, professor with tenure and at a good university and all that sort of stuff. But I guarantee you, I've seen in the course of my career plenty of people initially in my own court when I just got out of graduate school and then even now who are just as good as, as I am yeah. or better sometimes and they didn't get a job uh-huh. you know they, they they couldn't get because yeah. of a variety of things it, there's all sorts of factors that are not under your control are, they're outside of your power and you know it's not like I don't think I worked hard for what I am I did but so did a bunch of other people. That's true. And, and and those people were just as good as I am, if not, as I said, sometimes even, even more, and you know, I got lucky, right. and some of those other people didn't. And that's one of the things that is refreshing, actually, about stoicism, the constant awareness of just how large a uh, role, luck, fortune, as Seneca calls it, um, actually plays in your life. And that's why, at the beginning of the book, uh, with Greg, the, the handbook, and we say we explain that the stoic bet, so to speak, for happiness is not to rely on externals.
3: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: It's to rely only on internals. Why? Because internals are up to you. Right. You, you have the, last, the, the ultimate saying on those. And so if you consider yourself happy, uh, so long as you arrive at good judgments, a good decision to act or not to act, and you endorse good values. That's it. Then you're then you're, sa- you're safe because those things are entirely up to you. But if if your happiness depends on externals, such as how much money you're making or what kind of job do you have and so on and so forth, then then it's up to fortune, not not up to you.
0: It's chaotic. Yeah, you'll you'll yeah. be going with the ebb and flow of external. Externals,
1: right. yeah, and it's like, and a lot of times, especially, I see this with my clients a lot. They struggle with black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, where the idea is it's either I have all of these things or I don't. And so, what I've always loved about Stoicism is again going back to that idea of good enough that you can have those things. Those things in themselves are wonderful, right? There, you can go and enjoy them. But the idea right. is the person that you are and the attempts that you make are always going to be the most, or at least can be, the most important. And the way I kind of try to sometimes phrase it is like, let's say if you were to go up to a girl and like for me ask her out. And so for me and my own self, right, let's say I would still be disappointed by the fact that of, let's say I would be rejected, right? Which happens, obviously, we're human beings. So, but what I love about that is that I can still feel proud of myself for making the attempt. So the two can coexist, that I could be disappointed that I didn't get the thing that I wanted. But on the other hand, I could be proud of myself for making the attempt. So would I be, would I have been happier if she accepted my kind of offer? Absolutely. But I could still be happy in knowing that I was sort of courageous enough to give her.
0: Also, yeah. Also, if you don't take any action at all, right, you, you won't have any result or any experience or right. anything to learn from to do next time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah and the, the basic notion is that we should focus on what is under up to us, right. right? So the effort, the attempt. In other words, you internalize your goals. You know, Did you make the best attempt right. at whatever the goal was? Uh, if the answer is yes, then literally you cannot blame yourself for, for anything because you, you made the best attempt that you could. You, know, you did your best. And then develop an attitude of equanimity toward the outcomes. You know, realizing, as, as I would think adult human beings should do, that uh, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes things go your way and sometimes they don't. Sometimes for- fortune favors you and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it's, it's the hallmark of a childish mind to think that you have to
0: win all the time. Right. Right.
2: And of course, I know certain politicians that have that attitude, but that's that's not go <laughs> <there. laughs>
0: Absolutely. And say, for example, someone did have an adverse reaction to, to an event or something not going their way. The mental resources that you would spend uh, reacting to that or having an emotional disturbance would take away from the very next action that you could take. Whereas opposed to yeah. if you controlled your judgment of the situation, uh, perhaps had a uh, realize that that it was out of your control. Therefore, you'd have zero—not well, zero emotion, but perhaps little or none or no resistance. Then, at that point, you have enough clarity to decide what sort of action you can take next. Mm-hmm.
2: Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Albert Ellis would say that you you need not to catastrophize.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Uh, that's the yeah, which comes no. Unfortunately, comes normal to a lot of us because that's the way we grew up. It's like, oh, this is terrible. You know, it's like, oh, I lost my job. This is terrible. Well, maybe it is. Or maybe it's an opportunity. Now, now you actually can find a different job. Maybe you were stuck there and you didn't have the guts to get out because you know you, you figured, I have a job, so, you know, I can't, I can't leave it. Well, now you're forced to leave it. So now you have, you know, as as Marcus Herles, uh puts it, um, you know, the obstacle becomes the way. Right.
3: It's
2: like you know, you, you get a you get an obstacle in front of you. Instead of keep banging your head on the obstacle since it's clearly not going to yield, right. you go around it. You yeah. find you find a different path, right?
1: Right. And that actually happened to me. So when I worked for a pri- uh, private practice before this, we actually had, uh, we called this like the Tuesday night massacre. So myself, <laughs> unfortunately, and the nurse practitioners who worked for the practice, we were thrown off of a major insurance panel. And so a lot of us ended up, we, I think lost on average 30% of our clients just overnight. And wow. so yeah, at the time for everybody, this was probably the most horrific thing that could have happened to us professionally, obviously. Um, but Good. the thing is that this actually started emotions for me to actually start thinking about starting my own practice and opening up my own space. And if yeah. that didn't happen, as awful as it was at that period, I would have never had the courage to have done it. Of course also with support, but by the idea that I needed something terrible or something that awful to have happened to at least got the ball rolling and to got me thinking right. about it.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean the the basic notion in uh from, from the Stoics is that facts don't come with labels that tell you that they're awful or good. Right. Facts are facts. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then the label is up to us. Now that doesn't mean that the label is is necessarily inappropriate, right? Um, but you have to be aware that you are you are attaching a label to that fact. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why there's this famous uh, uh, bit in, in the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, where he tries this exercise of, of objectifying things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's often quoted by critics of Stoicism as, as an awful thing. Like, look at look at Marcus Aurelius, what a what a dour person he was, because in in that passage he says, you know, you have to remember that the purple that you are wearing, referring to the imperial purple, uh, is just, you know, uh, tissue soaked in in the blood of a a mollusk, Mm -hmm. and you have to remember that, that wonderful uh, you know meal that you had was just a dead fish mm-hmm. and you had to remember that with that wonderful falernian wine which was one of the most precious wines in ancient rome mm-hmm. that you had is just fermented grape juice mm-hmm. and then you had to remember that sex is just the uh, you know rubbing of surfaces and an explosion of mucus mm-hmm. now people look at this thing and <laughs> like what a what the hell is he talking about you know this is the most unromantic thing of, of all and obviously you didn't care about wine or food or or sex on the contrary what he was doing there is he was reminding himself that he was getting too much mm-hmm. about power, good food, good wine, and sex. I mean, after all, he did have 15 children, so we didn't wow. know that he had sex. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> um, and he took a, a, a you know a, a new woman after his his, um, uh, his wife died. So although he didn't remarry, but so so clearly he was what he was trying to do is exactly the opposite. He was basically trying to distance himself and say, okay just remind yourself that these things that you value so much can be described in more objective terms and those terms don't come with these labels attached to them that you care so much about
3: mm-hmm.
2: so it's an exercise in temperance it's mm-hmm. not it's not it, it's certainly not indicative that Marcus Aurelius didn't care about good food or, or sex on the contrary it's, it's an indication that he actually he, he realized himself that he was kidding too much and so that was his way to say wait a minute, let's, Keep some distance from time to time
0: from this thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's smart. Yeah, it helps you to detach from uh, from the pleasures of those things. Not because those things aren't pleasurable, right. because you, if you're if you are too attached to them, you're then a slave to to those desires.
2: That's exactly the term that Epictetus uses. Now the Stoics actually thought that pleasure is, as they put it, according to nature, and the pain is contrary to nature. And what they meant by this was the obvious observation that. Uh, people tend to, you know, be attracted to pleasures and, and tend to shy pains. There's, there's no question about it. Yeah. And so they took that. They took that on board. They said that that's fine. That's why pleasure is a preferred indifferent, and and pain is a dispreferred indifferent. Mm-hmm. Indifferent, of course, in the sense that they're, they don't actually affect your moral value. Right. So experiencing pleasure doesn't make you a better person
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? or worse person. And experiencing pain doesn't make you a better person or a worse person, right? In that sense, they're indifferent. They're morally indifferent. But they are preferred what is preferred. Mm -hmm. They are to be selected or to be avoided, right? Uh, So there is this acknowledgement that, of course, we do want all those things. Uh But as you just pointed out, Epictetus, and and actually Seneca says, you know, you are going to be a slave in proportion to the number of things you really care about, the externals that you really care about, Mm -hmm. right? The more things you care about, from the outside, the more you, there's going to be people who are going to be in a position to withdraw them from you,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then you're going to be their slave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you if you think that a, a career is absolutely important to you, then mm-hmm. anybody who's ahead of you or on top of you in that, in that career, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the chain of work, that they have power over you. If you want money, then whoever is in a position to give you money or withdraw money from you is is uh, you're their their slave. You're doing their bidding. Right. And that is why Epi says freedom true freedom uh, lies not in everything but having everything because nobody has everything right. and nobody can hold on to everything uh, indefinitely. Mm-hmm. The true freedom is precisely not to want anything outside other than external other than uh, you know your, your own you know, goodness of character and your your own uh, uh, ability to arrive at good decisions. That's why he said that's what really makes you free. Because if if that's really all all you care about, then nobody's going to be having any any power over you. Right,
1: and there was nobody's a point.
2: Gonna...
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there was you a point. Ahead. The point that Alan made earlier, which I really liked, and I wanted to ask you about it, Massimo. So, Alan, you mentioned before that in terms of emotions, right, they can interfere with our goals. Mm-hmm. And so, Massimo, then for you, according for according to the Stoicism and according to the Stoics, what would be the differentiation between the healthy and the unhealthy emotions?
2: Yeah, so it's. Good thing that we brought up this, this issue because, as you know, Stoics are often uh, regarded as people who try to suppress emotions. Right. And they did not, nothing of the kind, for one thing, because it's not possible to suppress emotions anyway. Uh-huh. Um, and the Stoics knew it. I mean, just just read Seneca's On Anger and he tells you, you don't suppress anger. You manage it. You right. mm-hmm. deal with it. But you don't suppress it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but you're absolutely right. They, broadly speaking, they, they made this distinction between uh, what they call the patei, uh, the negative emotions. That's the same root as pathos, pathology. So it means you know something bad. Um, and the eupatei, which are the positive emotions. And actually, they define them very clearly. Very clearly, the eupatei, the positive emotions, are those that are in accordance with reason.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute. Um, the um, the pathological emotions, the negative emotions, are the ones that actually overtake reason. The word they go contra against reason. So, for instance, anger, hatred, and fear are against reason because when you are in the thrall of any of those emotions, you tend not to think right. You know, they they you just you know they they overtake your ability to think. On the other hand, uh, love, joy, a sense of justice—those are positive emotions because those are in accordance with reason.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a good thing. It's reason tells you it's a good thing to love people. It's a good thing to have friends. It's a good thing to. Uh, you know, fight for justice, it's a good thing to enjoy things, in life, good things in life. Those are all in accordance with reason. And so the, the stoic project, in terms of emotions, to some extent, can be understood as one of moving away as much as possible from the negative ones and nurturing, you know, actively nurturing as much as possible the positive ones. Right
1: right and it's interesting because um so obviously because cbt and cognitive behavioral therapy and stoicism are so intertwined mm-hmm. we get the same sort of criticisms that stoic philosophy gets so um right. recently there were a few Aeon articles which i didn't really care for uh, even though they were very well written and the people who wrote them were super insightful i just want to say that but the articles were pretty much about how the kind of the main argument against cognitive behavioral therapy is that we try to eliminate emotions which we do no such thing so we try yeah. as best as we can to obviously mitigate their effects and mitigate them and then we try to kind of help the person sort of manage them in a way that becomes productive, but in no way is it possible to ever suppress emotions. So it's like when people kind of look at the... Yeah, go ahead,
2: No, sorry. And that's absolutely right. But one of the things that strikes me as strange in in this kind of discussion is that uh, the Stoics are often accused of being uh, dualists about the human mind uh, to, to essentially saying, oh, there's reason over here and emotions over there. And one needs to be control- taken control of the other. That's not the Stoic view. That's the Platonic view.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Plato actually famously said that the, the, the mind, the, well, he said the soul, but basically the human mind actually has three components, right? Three parts. Uh-huh. Uh, one is, has to do with reason. One has to do with emotions, you know, strong emotions. And the other one has to do with ap- 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 appetites, as you put it, right? Uh-huh. It's the kind of stuff, you know, the basic stuff when you get hungry, you know, thirst and things like that. Uh-huh. And famously, he, uh, Plato, came up with this analogy of the charioteer uh, that controls the, the the wild horses the wild horses are the emotions mm-hmm. and the charioteer is the, is reason mm-hmm. so this tripartite view of the soul which incidentally influenced freud i mean it's not a, it's not by chance that freud actually came up with a also a tripartite you know uh, distinction of, of, the, of the human conscious and subconscious Um, That's Plato. That's not the Stoics. The Stoics actually thought that they were monists in in philosophical terms. They actually thought that there is that the mind is one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's precisely because it's one thing. In other words, precisely because reason and emotions are completely connected, interconnected to each other. That is why you can use your reason to move away from the negative emotions and cultivate the positive ones. If they were distinct, there would be no way you could do that. There would be two different compartments. And modern neuroscience, in fact, as you know, uh, sort of backs up the Stoic intuition. Of course, the Stoics had an intuition about this stuff. that didn't do you know, experimental research in neuropsychology, obviously. Right. But modern neuroscience, if you read especially books like uh, those of Antonio Damasio, who is one of the few neuroscientists who is actually conversant in philosophy, and I think it's really worth reading, um, it very clearly tells you that Yes, it is the case, of course, that inside the human brain, there are, anatomical, you know, there, are, there are anatomical areas that are more connected with emotions, for instance, the amygdala, and other areas that are more connected with executive decision-making, the, the fronto-parietal looks. But the same neuroscience also tells you that those areas are massively interconnected. I mean, hundreds of millions of neurons right. that go back and forth and back and forth between these two,
3: right.
2: which is how you can, in fact, Re describe your emotions to yourself, Mm -hmm. and you can, in fact, you know, argue in a sense with your emotions and try to train yourself to move away from the negative ones and and go to the positive. If those were not highly interconnected, it wouldn't be possible to do that. It's like, what are you going to do? Right, precisely.
1: Yes. And and also just speaking to the science itself. So when it comes to cognitive therapy and obviously stoical practices, the idea is that we're essentially strengthening connections that were weakened by mental illness. So the idea is with mental illness, it's correlated Mm -hmm. with impulsivity. um, It's correlated with obviously bad decision-making. It's correlated with high anxiety, high sort of stress, high sadness. And the idea is is that because for a lot of those, um, let's say individuals struggling with those, um, let's say ailments, they don't really either have the tools or they're not feeling able to use the tools to actually strengthen those connections, strengthen the connection between the executive Sorry. right the executive part of the brain and obviously the amygdala right and the other part the emotional centers of the brain so and the idea is that when we're talking about stoic philosophy by the practices what you're essentially doing is you're making it's like kind of what freud said a long time ago where he said the point of therapy is for reason to be sort of at the center of attention and to be in control that's what stoical philosophy is and that's what cbt that's right. is right
2: that's right and you in, in a sense i think historically the the Philosophy has seen kind of a diametric, a symmetrical mistakes being made. On the one by Plato, as I just mentioned, but if you go much later and you go to David Hume, one of my favorite philosophers, as it turns out, um, but you know a sceptic philosopher of the 18th century, he made the opposite mistake. He he thought that that the passions, as he called them. Uh, ought to be, he famously says. Reason is and ought to be the slave of passions, mm-hmm. meaning meaning that unless you give a damn for some, about something emotionally, you're not going to do anything. The reason by itself isn't going to give you enough any motivation. In a sense, he's right. Of course, we we in order to do things, we need to care about things. But what he was missing is exactly. I mean, I think he made the symmetrical mistake as Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, that is plato thought that well it's only reason reason ought to control things and then hume says no it's the other way around emotions ought to control no it's neither it's it's an interaction between the two a good human mind a functioning human mind has to be this cohesive interact interaction back and forth between our emotional and and uh, reason aspects reasonable aspects of our of our mind, but there is only one mind. We don't have multiple ones. It's not a bunch of different things that sort of struggle against each other. It's it's one unitary thing and we need we need to deal with it accordingly.
1: Right, and in your chapter you mentioned, um, I guess you put it forth as a sort of a precautionary tale of Spock. Can you tell us about that? What it would be like if you were too rational?
3: Hmm.
2: Right, so so Spock is an interesting character. Right? It's, again, one of my favorite characters uh, in, in science fiction for hmm. one thing. But Spock is often presented as um so the quintessential stoic, right? So stiff upper lip,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, uh, suppressing emotion and all this sort of stuff. But actually, uh, I, I uh, recently I had to write a paper. I was invited to write a paper, a technical paper, on Spock and stoicism. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I went back and then sort of reconsidered the whole thing. And uh, my impression now is that Spock is actually far more complex uh, than, you know, these, these superficial cartoonish, view of him often presents it for instance when when people say that Spock is trying to suppress emotion he himself occasionally says especially in the early uh, in the original series he occasionally says you know emotions are bad and all that sort of stuff well but then it turns out that he cares about justice it turns out that he cares about friends it turns out he cares about honor well those are emotions
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> is now it's true that he puts it in terms of logic but those are actually emotions and of course there is there is um, one of my favorite quotes from Spark is from one of the, the last movies that it, that Leonard Nimoy did, um, the Undiscovered Country, mm-hmm. where he's, he is having a conversation with a young Vulcan woman who is you know for whom he's he's the role model, mm-hmm. and he surprises her by saying you know logic is is not the end; it's on the beginning of wisdom. Right. Right. And it's it's a great quote because the, so the Stoics would go would definitely go for that, and they would they would say yes, of course you want to. to uh, Act rationally and to think logically. I mean, when uh, when I get criticism uh, about the stoics, the stoics, along the lines of "Oh, it's all about reason," you know, there's too much reason. It's like, yeah, sure, this is a world where we have too much reason. That's our problem. It's, it's like, what? what? <laughs> where do you live? Um, so, no, I think a little bit more reason is a good idea. Right. But the ultimate notion is actually, as I said before, an integration of reason and emotion, because. Plato and, and Hume both had half of the story right. right. You don't want unbridled emotions uh, without reason controlling your life, because otherwise you're behaving, as Epictetus says, as a wild beast, right. and not as a human being. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, a human being who is only going after logic, uh, logic and completely suppresses emotion, that's the definition of a psychopath right and we don't we don't want a bunch of psychopaths going around and certainly the stoics were not a bunch of psychopaths
1: right so if we so, if, if we were to then conceptualize it can we say that it's like it's okay to listen to your emotions and it's obviously necessary but at the end of the day it has to be reason that makes the final judgment
2: that's right, right. i mean to some, to some extent you can think of it this way that your considered opinions as epictetus would, would put it um Sometimes they're going to go along with your emotional instinct and sometimes they're going to override your emotional instincts, right? So um, uh, If you care about things like justice and love and friendship, then you have an alignment of your emotions and your reason but if you uh, You know if you want sex with a stranger even though you're in a committed relationship for instance In fact, that's one of the examples that Epictetus uh, brings up like well in that case uh, your reason might want to override that and say, "Yeah, I, I understand why you're feeling that way. You know, she, she's very, she looks very attractive, but you know, here you are, you're in a committed relationship, you love the person you are with. So, what the hell are you doing?" Right. Um, right. And that's that's kind of commonsensical. I mean, it seems to me like we don't want a um, we don't want to be the kind of individuals that go from one emotional uh, override to another. Uh, just going after whatever makes you you know makes you feel good in, in the moment i mean that's that's like that 's the life of a drug addict right
1: uh,
2: you know if if you were just just pursuing pleasure in the moment then then all you do then why not act uh, you know hook yourself up to a drug machine and then live your life that way? Not many people would consider that kind of life a human life well lived
0: right. So then would you say maybe combining, I mean, this may, the answer may be just in Stoicism itself, but what if you combined Epicureanism with Stoicism, like the, the reason of Stoicism with the Carpe Diem of, right. of Epicureanism?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and this this is often comes up even in discussion groups uh, devoted to Stoicism. Like, well, why why can I not be a little bit of this and a little bit of that? It's, it's this sometimes refer. There's a term for that actually. It's a syncretic philosophy, mm-hmm. so a philosophy that uh, kind of bits uh, bits and pieces from different uh, portions to some extent. Actually, Cicero was a syncretist.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even
2: though he, he, he uh, thought of himself as an academic skeptic, um, he was also very sympathetic to. Stoicism, for instance. So, he, he really, his writings are, in fact, a kind of a pick and, pick and choose of things. And Bill Irvine is actually a, a modern example. And on those lines, even though he writes mostly about Stoicism, uh, if you read his books, there's clearly a combination of, of different things, one of which, some element, uh, coming from uh, Epicureanism. Sure, if that works for you, that's, that's great. But there is a danger in syncretic philosophies, in sort of eclectic philosoph- philosophizing. And that is that at some point, you might lose coherence. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the advantages of uh, of adopting a particular philosophy is that that they tend to be internally coherent, internally Mm -hmm. consistent, right? Mm -hmm. So as my uh, colleague Don Robertson, who has written a number of books on stoicism, points out every time that this discussion between Epicureanism, Epicureanism and stoicism comes up, he says, well, sure, most of the time that might work for you. But at some point there will be a situation where you have to decide either you do the virtuous thing or you do the things that doesn't cause pain.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you decide uh. on the first one, you're a Stoic. If you decide on the second one, you're a Epicurian. Mm-hmm. So at some, at some point, the two criteria will come to a head. And so most of the times, you'll be fine. But at some point, if you decide, you, you will have, you'll have to decide, you have to take sides. Now, that said, I think Don is right, and that's why I tend to uh, go for Stoicism as a, as a coherent philosophy as opposed to Sort of a syncretic approach. However, that said, let's not rem- let's not forget that Stoicism itself started out as a syncretic philosophy.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So Zeno took bits and pieces from a bunch of different uh, teachers. He, he, he took bits of cynicism. Um, he took bits of um, uh, essentially skepticism. it got bits of the Eleatic school, which emphasized logic, and so on and so forth. He did not get Epicurean. He didn't really care for Epicureanism from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but Stoicism itself did start as a syncretic philosophy. However, that is one of the reasons why Diogenes Laertius, uh, who is one of our major sources on ancient philosophy in general, not just, not just Stoicism, in Book 7 of his Lives and Opinions of the Eminent Philosophers, which is devoted to Stoicism, he says that uh, if it were not for Chrysippus, there would be no Stoa. Chrysippus was the third head of the Stoa, so he was a student on Zeno, And he's credited for having systematized Stoicism. Right. So, cleared up a bunch of stuff, you know, got him rid of a bunch of stuff that didn't really work very well. Um, and sort of applied more coherent, more strict logic so that to make Stoicism an internally coherent philosophy. Hmm. Uh, Zeno was So in other words, what he did was to get rid of a bunch of the syncretism that Zeno had hmm. actually studied with, because he realized that there were some things that just didn't go with each other. It's like, well, you can't argue A and B if A and B are contrary to each other or, or incompatible with, with each other. So it's interesting to me that that's what Cricipus, um, one of Chrysippus' main contribution to Stoicism is precisely this idea of systematizing uh,
0: the philosophy. That's fascinating. Uh, I never heard that before. I mean, uh, you would think it makes sense to have a syncretic philosophy, take bits from here, here, and then integrate it and try to make the best version of philosophy for for yourself and for others. However, that's interesting. Systematizing it it provides a structure and it's a very well thought out structure. And that coherence is very, very important. That's very fascinating. And it,
2: it, it happened at other times. At other times, I mean, Buddhism was a reaction to Hinduism, mm-hmm. to early Hinduism, right. and so a lot of actually the, the, the um, beliefs of uh, Buddhists are actually traceable to the to, to Hindu uh, uh, philosophy. However. One of the things that happened over the first two or three centuries of Buddhism is that things got purged. Mm-hmm. Right? So it started out in a certain in a certain way, and then things got systematized and purged, and then and you have uh, recogni- recognizable schools of Buddhism uh, arising over over the centuries. So uh, it's in a, in a sense what I'm saying is that both situ- both things are true. It is true that pretty much every philosophy begins with uh, in a syncretic fashion, and in fact every religion. Think about Christianity. I mean, um, Christianity obviously came out of Judaism, right? right? And, uh, in fact, Epictetus mentions the Christians in the discourses, but it refers to them as that little Jewish sect, <laughs> right? Uh, at the time, they were, they were little. This, he was writing at the end of the first, you know, he actually wasn't writing. He was his student, Arian, who wrote these things down. But mm-hmm. he was talking about, he was teaching in the end of the first century, early, first, early second century. So at the time, Christianity was, in fact, a small sect. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that he didn't use the term Christians. Marcus Aurelius uses the term Christians. Mm-hmm. He's, he's one of the first sources we know to actually refer to explicitly, philosophical sources, to refer to explicitly to Christians. And he, and he wrote after Epictetus, of course. He wrote in the, near the, the end of the second century. By that time, the Christians were actually a recognizable force within the Roman Empire. Right. But for Epictetus, they were just the Jews. You know, There was a sect within Judaism. And, of course, Christianity, uh, especially in the fourth and fifth century, with after it became... Um, you know, took over the Roman Empire with Constantine. Um, then it, they studied all these these uh, councils, right? The Council of Nicaea being the most famous. And what did they do? They purged. Mm-hmm. They they took a bunch of stuff that was there in the beginning, and then they said, "Okay, we're gonna get rid of this. We're gonna get rid of that. I don't want you. We're gonna rewrite this." Mm-hmm. And Christianity, as we understand it today, it's actually a, the result of a process of centuries of of evolution, which did include. Uh, the attempt to make it more internally coherent, more separate, more distinct from Judaism, and so on and so forth. So. Hmm.
1: Right. And so returning to Stoic philosophy, I mean, a lot of what I get like in terms of psychotherapy and in terms of dealing with my clients and cognitive behavioral therapy is when we do focus on the internals and sort of your moral character and becoming the person that you want to be, sometimes kind of perfectionism pops up where a person, again, black and white thinking, a person would say, oh, well, I tried to be perfect this week or I tried to be a good person and I just didn't work out. So now I feel even worse about myself. So not only do I not have these preferred indifferences, but now I actually feel like I have a terrible character on top of that. So in terms of kind of Stoical thinking, Thinking, right? How would the Stoics sort of deal with somebody who struggles with black and white thinking, who thinks that they're either a good person or a bad person, where there's no sort of in-between for them? Well,
2: I, I think that's why the Stoics tell, uh, uh, told us that we're all bad persons, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so just start from that point, mm-hmm. um, they, they famously thought, uh, thought that the sage is the only person who is tr- truly can be said to be virtuous. Mm-hmm. And Seneca sa- tells us that sages are very rare. He says they're as rare as the phoenix, mm-hmm. the mythological bird. And according to ancient uh, Roman mythology, that's one every 500 years. Wow! So there's not that many sages around, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, now, why why would the Stoics say that everybody is, is not virtuous? Everybody is not, you know, is is um, um, is not a sage, precisely because of that. I think to avoid this kind of oh. I, I'm perfect I want to be perfect kind of thing there's no such thing as being perfect um, one of the reasons the Stoics got upset with uh, Epicurus is because he actually went around telling people that he was a sage
3: mm-hmm.
2: wow. so so yeah and it's like <laughs> said no what what are you talking about nobody says nobody's a sage so um, it's a goal you know so to, be, to become virtuous and to become you know eventually a sage is a goal it's a reference point um, but we always fall short of it by definition Mm-hmm. Right, sort of right, right from the get-go. And so one of the things that I do appreciate about Stoicism is that it is this highly self-forgiving as well as other forgiving philosophy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Epictetus says at some point something very interesting in, uh, in the discourses. He says, um, you know, the beginner blames other people, mm-hmm. the person who has made progress blames all in himself, mm-hmm. and the person who is really wise doesn't blame anybody. Wow. Right. So so the notion being is like, no, forget blame, forget both self-blame and other blame. That doesn't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. The only thing is ask yourself every day, am I am I moving in the right direction? And yeah, sometimes you're going to slide back. Sure. So what? You pick up in, in the following day and start over.
1: Right. That's okay, and the beauty is that you're the one who has the power to forgive yourself, which is what I love. Correct. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, that's how that's um, how Seneca explains one of the Stoic exercises, right? The, the evening diary
3: mm-hmm.
2: or the evening meditation. Uh, in uh, the, near the end, the end of on anger, he actually gives you a pretty, pretty detailed explanation of how you're supposed to do it. And one of the things that he says there is like you know it's very nice to, uh, in the end, of the, at the end of the day, to go over what you've done, to forgive yourself for things you've done wrong, mm-hmm. to accept and appreciate the things you've done right, and then go to bed. Right. It's, it's, like, it's like your conscience is clear. It's like you, 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 it is in your power to forgive yourself and then to say, you know, tomorrow I'll do better. Love and that.
1: Yeah, that's it.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, perfection is, is a bad idea. It's mm-hmm. a really bad idea.
0: Right. Uh, what's meant by the concept, uh, everything has two handles? That's in Epictetus,
2: um, and you, you find it in, uh, I think it's both in the Discourse and the Enchiridion. Um, but in the there's, there's this famous phrase where he says um, that, that things have two handles, one of which it's, sometimes it's difficult to pick up to pick up things from one handle, and so you want to pick up from the other handle. This example is a student who apparently had a problem with his brother, and he said, you know, my brother's been treating me badly. And Peter says, well, you can pick up the, the situation from that handle, from the point of view that your brother treated you badly, and that's going to be a tough one because you're going to disagree. About what bad is, and you know, I think he's, he's he thinks he's right. You think you're right. It's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Or you can decide to pick it up from the other handle, which is that he's your brother. You grew up together, and you love him. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So, to, so for again, forgiveness. Right. So that doesn't mean that you know, you know the brother didn't necessarily do something wrong. He probably he might have done something wrong. But the point is. You want to look at the situation from a different perspective. One is constructive. So the the handle you should try to pick up the situation. Situations is a constructive angle and and, uh, handle, not the um, antagonist
0: one. I like that because um, instead of valuing a sort of short-sighted or short-term perspective of I'm angry at my brother right now, um, you tackle it from another perspective, from a long-term perspective where I'm still going to be having a relationship with my brother. That's right. Uh, So I should... Tackle this a different way, where we discuss it, not where uh, I make the situation necessarily worse, mm-hmm. but in a way where we can still have our relationship after this discourse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: And it and it works. I mean, I actually went through exactly that situation a few years ago with one of my brothers. There was a you know it was a disagreement between us, and of course each one of us was absolutely convinced that we were right. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you
2: know, and and it went on for a while, and we obviously. That I saw that the situation wasn't deteriorating. We were just not talking that much uh, to each other. And so at some point, I just pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, how are you doing? Without even talking about uh, what, that, what the issue was. And to my surprise, although Epictetus wouldn't be surprised probably, it just acted as if nothing had happened and our relationship resumed and it has flourished since.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: now, we haven't settled that particular issue. But the question is, well, was it that important to settle it? I mean, I have my opinion. I still have the original opinion. I haven't changed my opinion. I think he was wrong on certain things. And, of course, he still has his opinion. But ultimately, in the long run, it doesn't matter Hmm. because we're still brothers. We still have a good relationship, and we're just going to be implicitly agreeing to disagree about that that specific issue. Why should that specific issue, however, dominate and define our relationship as brothers? That's what Epictetus was talking about.
1: Right. And then, so Massimo, one of our final questions is going to be, how do the Stoics understand what it means to be a good moral guide? And why is it that for them, judging other people is actually erroneous?
2: Um, so, moral guidance is uh, is something that the Stoics uh, see in role models, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, Seneca especially goes on and on and on about role models, and of course, and so does Epictetus. Mm-hmm. The classic Stoic role model, of course, is Socrates. Mm-hmm.
3: And,
2: and do, do just do whatever Socrates would do. Uh, and don't do anything that Socrates wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Although they have others, including some mythological ones. For instance, um, one of the Stoic role models was uh, Odysseus,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, because Odysseus was a you know. Uh, rational, uh, you know, he used reason to solve problems. He was courageous. Uh, he was just, and he tried to get back to his, you know, to his wife and, and child. Basically, that—that that was the whole point of the Odyssey, right? Mm-hmm. He turned down actually uh, the offer of immortality twice in mm-hmm. you know, order to go back to his, uh, to his, to his wife. So, so the Stoics, uh, Seneca is very clear about this. He, he says, "Why would you want to pick a role model?" He actually tells his friend Lucilius, "You know, pick a role model that works for you."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, if, if if Cato, the younger, who was a pretty stern guy, works for you, great. If he's just trying to pick somebody else who is actually more, you know, more to your liking, more to... Uh, but why would you want to do that? And Seneca says explicitly, he says, because the only way to see how crooked you are is by comparing yourself with a straight ruler. Mm-hmm. Right? And so a role model is somebody you inspire to. It doesn't have to be a perfect person. It just has to be somebody who is doing the kind of things that you aspire to do. Right?
3: Uh-huh.
2: Um... But in terms of judgment, so not judging other people is, uh, which is I, in my mind, at least, is one of the, the uh, most welcome and also most difficult uh, aspects of Stoicism's practice, because it comes so damn natural to us to judge other people. Right. Oh, that jerk over there—that's a judgment. Right. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That jerk cut me off on the highway. You don't know. Mm-hmm. I and mean, the Stoic argue- argument is you have no idea why he cut you off.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, right. So the first lo- line of defense in terms of judgment is this, like you should remind yourself that very often you actually don't have enough information about other people. Sure, it may be, uh, 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 you know, the person may have cut you off on the the highway because he's a jerk, or Mm -hmm. maybe because he was rushing to the hospital because his pregnant wife is giving birth to his son.
3: How
2: the hell do you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, You have no idea. Mm -hmm. So, uh, number one. So, at at the very least, you should suspend judgment.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: But the other thing is, even if you actually know for a fact that he's a jerk, because sometimes we no, right, right. Nah, there was no pregnant wife. Uh, it was like, you know, he's just acts that way because he's feels self entitled, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, but that's for the Stoic. That actually undermines his own character. The joke is on him.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's his own character is actually making, you know, he's, he's getting worse as a result. Not yours.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, nothing he's doing to you is actually gonna gonna uh, affect your character. And your character is the the only thing that is under your control, not not other people's behavior. Now, whenever I say that, I have to add the obvious caveat because people often say, oh, does that mean that I have to be a, a doormat and people walk all over me? It's like, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. If there is an injustice going on, you should act. And the injustice, whether the injustice is against you or against somebody else, you should act um, to prevent injustice or to redress the injustice, if it is possible. Mm-hmm. But why should you do that? And on top of that, add, add the judgment, oh, he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help. That's not a factual thing. It, it's a judgment, again, right? And it doesn't, the injustice itself is a factual thing.
3: Mm-hmm. It's like,
2: okay, this thing has actually, this guy has actually acted this way. According to our rules, this is not a good thing to do. So I'm going to act. But why do you have to impute motives to the person?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that you, it, it just doesn't, first of all, most of the time, as I said, you don't actually know. And second of all, even if you did know, that's not helpful. Yeah. Because that, that makes you into self righteous, Vindictive, you know, inclined to be- to vengeance, kind of person, and vengeance for the Stoics is not a good thing. Right.
1: Uh, they have
2: a they have a whole uh, Epictetus has a whole chapter in the Discourses on Medea, uh-huh. uh, the the famous uh, Greek uh, tragedy, which was actually rewritten by Seneca. Seneca wrote a new version of Medea, uh-huh. um, and Medea, of course, is this famous uh, woman who uh, has. Uh, Two children with Jason. Uh, Jason was the guy that was uh, the captain of the Argonauts, and uh, and Jason promises her to, that he's going to marry her and all that sort of stuff. And then they go back to Greece, and what does Jason do? He goes off with a Greek princess and you know and, and wants to marry her and and tells Medea, you know, I'm sorry, you're just a barbarian, mm-hmm. so I can't you know. And um, obviously Jason is not acting properly, mm-hmm. but Medea gets so upset, so. Uh, in, in, you know, enraged that she literally loses her mind and so she convinces herself that the, the way to redress this injustice is to kill her own children of wow. course Jason, Jason's children right? and for the Stoics that's exactly the problem Jason had done an injustice and if, he, if it's in your power to redress that injustice you should but if you start going down the route of rage and vengeance you're very likely going to do something that is horrible and it's not going to redress the injustice and you're going to actually simply respond to an injustice with another injustice in this case you know going to the extreme of calling uh, killing your own children so so oh, yeah. the Medea story it's a great story in stoic, stoic lore that tells you very clearly the difference between acting rightly acting justly and acting on uh, the uh, uh, under the, the um, Influence of vengeance and of strong negative emotions. Right,
0: and that reminds me of the Marcus Aurelius quote, um, which I may not say verbatim, but if thou art pained by a thing, it's not that thing that is causing you suffering; it's your estimate of it, and Correct. your estimate is within your power to control or your That's judgment right. of it. Yeah,
2: and Marcus himself gets it straight from Epictetus. There is a, a bit in the in the in the in Canadian where he says, "It is not." Uh, things that accept that, are, that upset people. It's their opinions about things,
3: right? right. Yeah.
2: Um, and of course the implication being you can change your opinion and of course in psychology as you know This is referred to as the framing effect
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Right, so which is very powerful There's a lot of empirical evidence about the framing effect that the, the 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 notion that the very same facts will elicit very different Responses depending on the way in which they're presented. right? The classic example is if you go to the doctor and he says hey, you got a 90% chance of surviving this right. You, that's one thing. If it tells you you got a 10% chance yeah. of dying, it's a complete yeah, yeah, yeah. reaction. Right, yeah. But 90% survival and 10% dying is exactly the same thing. Right. It's telling you exactly the same factual information, but the way it's presented, it's going to elicit a very different reaction. Right. Um, the Stoics basically use this um, this framing effect as a mind trick to help yourself instead of you know being being uh, reacting the wrong way. And, it's, and that's exactly what Marcus is telling himself. It's like well remind remind yourself that this very same situation that is upsetting you you can decide it's up to you to decide to think of it differently
1: right
2: instead of a tragedy or a catastrophe think of it as a challenge for instance as a problem to solve as something that, that can exercise your virtue mm-hmm. and then it looks it looks very different right uh, the facts are the same and it's not a, you know it's not that like you're changing there's no magic involved here you're not going to be able to change things the the, the way things are but changing the perspective that you have on on things that makes a huge difference and sometimes people tell me well that's just a mind trick yeah so is life in general human life is entirely a mind trick Mm -hmm. because we go through life by by projecting certain frameworks on events Mm -hmm. that's that's what it means to be conscious you know um animals presumably don't do that they they react instinctively to events they don't actually Come up with these judgments. We do that on, on all the time, right? Right. and so the notion that those judgments are in fact not automatic—you can argue with them. You can say, "No, wait a minute. This is not the right way to think about this. I'm, I'm going to think about it in a different way, and that's going to be more productive." That's a really powerful. Uh, way
0: to deal with
1: life's problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, And this was so fantastic. So Alan, do you have any final questions for Massimo before we go, man?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow your work on social media, uh, where can we find you?
2: So I'm on Twitter at uh, Mpilucci,
1: MPigliucci,
2: M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you can find pretty much everything that I write, podcasts, videos, the whole shebang at massimopilucci.com. Massimo Pilucci, one word.
1: Awesome. Thank Great. you so, so Thank much for, for coming, coming on, Massimo. Well, this was excellent. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank Have you. a good one. You too. Thanks. You too. Bye. All right. Wow. <sighs> wow. That was awesome. That was like a marathon. I loved that. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> well, All right. guys, to everyone watching at home, if you want to follow our work, uh, please follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Yep. Uh, like, subscribe uh, on YouTube. Uh, click the bell
1: yes don't forget to hit the bell yes yeah and then also guys you can find us at the o4l online network and you can find us under the seize the moment podcast or ct no i'm sorry that's stm podcast section on top of the website obviously huge shout out to our guy vegas media designs you can Mm -hmm. follow him on instagram and also please guys don't forget if you're ever interested in any sort of nutritional advice you can follow or actually to go to the website. You can follow Vera at Verified Nutrition. That's V-E-R-A-F-I-E-D N-U-T-R-I-T um, i-o-n th- I- thank .com. god <laughs> nutrition verified nutrition dot com and so she prepares meals and then obviously on top of that she gives nutrition advice which in terms of what massimo said maintaining physical health she's a big help for that
0: also guys thank you so much for watching look forward to our episode next week episode 50 oh yeah. and we have scott barry kaufman coming on and that's going to be really exciting we're going to be talking about his new book yeah. Trans-
1: transcend transcend the new science of self actualization which is a build up or rather a building on a abraham maslow's theory of um let's see how i could conceptualize it abraham i guess hierarchy of needs even though it's scott doesn't really conceptual- no it's great we'll, we'll, we'll get into it yeah, next yeah, week okay.
0: but let's <laughs> just say hierarchy of needs <laughs> <laughs> but yes look forward to that and one last thing uh at the very bottom of our description is our new patreon link if you if you like us you know please uh help us uh, donate it'll improve the show improve camera equipment lighting uh maybe a studio in the future See, (laughs) but yes, uh, look forward to next time, and again, thanks for watching.